You're listening to a Good World Podcast. Presented by Good Organics. With your hosts, Garrett McMartin and Gary Beasley. Where we talk about good news. The kind that you want to hear. Sustainability. Small changes that protect our world. And the mind, body, and soul. Pretty much anything that we believe leads to a better future and a good world for everyone. Hey, 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 everybody. It's Garrett McMartin with the Good World Podcast. And as always, I'm with Gary Beasley. Yeah, Say hey, hi. Guys. Hey, guys. And we have a special guest on the show for everyone, um, Mr. Nicholas Fawcett. Yeah. So, Hello. Yeah. So uh, me and Nick actually met via LinkedIn. Um, we were working on another project together and that kind of... Um, like we mentioned last time, Garrett was part of it, kind of went... Uh, went sideways and then so <laughs> we're still friends though so here, here he is on the podcast um so nick what uh what's your background my background is in uh philosophy and urban regional planning Amazing. yeah i know um nick when we had met yeah you had a lot of really interesting da- ideas and like kind of pushing the edge of innovation and sustainability um even uh, you remember you're speaking briefly of the algae farm and it was something i found really intriguing maybe that's something we can talk about yeah sure uh it's something i've been looking into um figuring out how to create systems that try to work with the carbon system rather than adding to it yeah so me and nick actually are both uh, ambassadors for the sea setting institute so that's another connection that we have together um, so yeah, I actually just, uh, gave, uh, Garrett here, the, the book, uh, let me see that for a sec, Garrett. Um, it's called Seasteading, how floating nations will restore the environment, enrich the poor, cure the sick and liberate humanity from politicians. And it's by Joe Cork, um, with Patrick Friedman and Patrick Friedman is, uh, the guy who invented the Institute, I believe. And he has a bunch of other books that are also great and his actually his father um, wrote a bunch of books as well on governance and so yeah he's great are you um an ambassador as well nick or yeah yep yeah oh, i've been an ambassador so for probably almost six months now i'm not really sure i haven't really tracked it but it was last fall at some point i think uh what yes. drew you guys to that uh, well, I, I, uh, I like thinking outside the box and it seems like an, an interesting way to try to, um, modify the way civilization works in a, in a constructive way, like trying to colonize the oceans, try to activate the oceans and make us more sustainable and more free is essentially the basis of the, the aspiration of most seasteaders although there's a pretty good plurality in the political inclinations of of the seasteaders um there's libertarians and then non-libertarians and it it seems like there's a there's a hub of of libertarianism within uh the seasteading institute um but i think uh you know i think that that's that's cool i i like aspects of libertarianism but um i don't necessarily identify as a libertarian uh in certain ways i guess 
I guess so for the the Seasteading Institute, amongst the innovation and the whole idea of pushing the limit with the system that they're generating, uh, there's an aspect of politics too. I heard you mention uh, what like like is it a, trying to do a self governance or? Yeah, so there's different groups. Some of them think about doing uh, seasteading within the confines of national boundaries, the economic zones, and um, you know, and there's issues with international law and uh, sovereignty of nations and things like insurance. It's it's a pretty complicated dynamic once you're trying to get out into the oceans. Um, but a lot of people think that international is where you need to go. The international waters outside of the economic zones. The problem is that they're so far out there that there's pretty extreme conditions that you can yeah. face and you're very isolated. And so the finding the balance between, you know, sovereignty and law and logistical support and all these different dynamics is one of the biggest challenges um and you know getting money to finance the the creation of these kinds of projects so yeah i just wanted to add um ocean builders um i think they are the biggest company right now that's actually successfully built um seasteads and homes and yeah there's a few other companies but i think that's the most major one do you know about any others nick uh, there's Ventive Float House, I believe is what it's called. Um, they're making these pill-shaped um, floating uh, houses. And I think the idea is that they will be able to link them in a modular fashion. And, um, but the, it's all still being designed. I don't believe anything. I think that the um, ocean builders are the only ones who have actually built and have um, an existing paradigm. I know there's. But I know that they've companies. had some. some sorry, go ahead. What? Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say they've had some issues with uh, insurance. They wanted to uh, purchase a cruise ship and turn it into a, an innovation center and uh, a place to be a hub for sea setting and um, their business, but there's uh there's difficulty in finding insurance and most um ports and countries want and will not license people unless they have insurance i think that's that's the main issue that i've been hearing about um and so the insurance is a, is one of the biggest problems one of the biggest hurdles to seasteading at the moment it seems hmm yeah, I did actually that I think that was the the ocean builders that actually bought that um cruise ship and I guess it didn't didn't go over well like you said. Yeah. They were going to buy it but it fell through because because they weren't able to get insurance. Right. It seems yeah. like the government always got some kind of uh big high wall that you're going to run into when you're trying to get away from the system. Generally, you think, you know, that if you were able to innovate and come up with some kind of design or system that people were willing to join and you were able to fund it, that 
you know, you would be able to do such a thing, but we're constantly running into barricades and not even just yeah. in pushing innovation. I think a lot of cultural, uh, um, you know, uh, hurt going on and, and, and people being shut down and charged for trying to protect, you know, the earth. And I know there's a lot of land protectors up north right now that are getting just jailed like crazy. My cousin's husband, Will George, is actually up there as a land defender. And they're all within their legal rights, but for whatever reason, the government has decided that that's not good enough anymore. And I think that's kind of what you see with the seasteading institute is that they, they, they make it really hard for you to achieve. And then when you get there, they're like, oh, no, you weren't supposed to do this. So let's just say th there's this law and, and now you're never going to be able to do it. Right? And, and that's a big project to go without insurance. So it's definitely a, a, a huge factor in success. Yeah, I'm not an expert in the insurance aspect, but I don't think that that necessarily is rooted in government. I think it's rooted in private companies not wanting to take the, the financial risk because uh, it's about a liability you know, the insurance, from what I read recently, was that the liability is for each person that will be insured on these platforms. And since the platforms are not uh, proven yet, since they're, you know, they're a new thing, the cost of insuring would be prohibitive and or the people who are insurers don't want to even entertain that risk because it's, there's no, there's no reason for them to, I guess, um, I don't. I think that the 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 governmental regulations or barriers is the um, economic zones and the sovereignty things. But you know that's something that, in some ways, it makes sense. It's just to have you know like to have territorial sovereignty and to have you know because you have to have any kind of legal system needs to have a territory to which it is applied, and so. Um, that's essentially the reason for those kinds of barriers to as far as I understand them. I think if we but... follow those companies though, and we follow them up the chain that it all leads to the same place in the end. I think that's more what I was trying to get at instead of the general aspect, it's uh, limiting when you try to follow dig in, like for example, Gary and I, Obviously, we're launching our toothpaste tablets, and we have some competition. There's a Hello Toothpaste. The other one? The other one? Oh, Tom's. <laughs> oh, Tom's. Yeah, Tom's. Tom's and me? Yeah, Tom's, Tom's and me, right? And so yeah. we did some digging, and they're, you know, they're a high-end premium natural product. And But it turns out that these guys sold a long time ago, and, and they're all owned by Colgate. And so now they've you've watched these brands kind of build up and have this client or 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 the people that are using it to market that they have are expecting this and then these big companies dive in and then they keep the name and they keep the people and then they switch the ingredients and they and they go right back to the old stuff and it's just kind of this big cycle and, it, and that's kind of what I was getting at by my comment earlier. Yeah, except I think that the cycle has to do with 
capitalism and self-interest as opposed to government regulation. That's yeah. the, you know, it's self-interest. And if you have ownership and you're willing to check out and sell your piece of a thing, and then you sell it to this big, you know, multinational corporation, you know, that's, that's different than the regulations of a, of a government that's there. To, essentially the government is there to, to protect and serve the public interest you know and that's a pretty broad and complicated dynamic in so many different ways but um, i wonder who's uh you know speaking in the government's ear if we think like that i mean how many corporations are pushing laws based on uh, you know do you, oh, is definitely. it even the government anymore or is it what about it it said is it even actually a government anymore because it seems more like whoever pays the highest can set a law well i guess it the definition of a government i mean it is a government that's i mean it, whether or not it's the kind of government you or i or you know whatever whoever wants that's the question you know whether or not it serves the people in the best way because there's the way that it's happened in the united states seems to be favoring economic interests rather than collective well-being but collectivism is uh not necessarily a central uh, principle to how our economic or political system works. The that's actually one of our arguments about like the battle between like capitalism versus socialism and communism and you know the collectivism versus individualism and that's a really hairy topic. <laughs> um, but. Yeah. Ultimately, I think that most people who care about government and understand the need for good government understand that there needs to be a balance between individual and collective priorities. Um, and I think that in the United States and possibly in Canada, although I don't know enough about Canada, that the priority of the individual um, has often taken too much um, precedent over the collective well-being um, you know, the way that our, our country's healthcare system, for example, it is highly individualistic. It's about whether or not the system can, uh, that's a private system that helps private individuals, uh, whether or not it can help individuals. And in, some people argue that it can help a whole lot of individuals, but typically it's the individuals who can pay, whereas all other social, socialized countries with socialized medicine and, and other, other systems, they seem to have a much more collectivistic priority of those subsets of our civilization. Yeah, so originally what drove me to the Seasetting Institute is the idea that they want to create like a market competition for uh, living together or a governance system. So you would basically have different floating nations where you could if if you didn't like what was going on you could essentially float away and go attach to another <laughs> one essentially right uh, fuck you guys yeah it's, it's, detaching. It's, yeah so you just go where where you're treated best right so it's a competition mark like competition that. that's really cool i never heard that aspect before yeah, so there's there's a great book um, written by Titus Gebel. He's actually a German entrepreneur. Um, this book's called Free Private Cities, Making Governments Compete for You. 
So that they he actually outlines like every like in detail everything that you need to actually have like a proper functioning private city and it actually makes a lot of sense. Ah, oh, that's what I mean. Uh, okay, there's so many moving parts when you come to uh you know, I, I this is actually a project that the three of us are looking to work on and it's not so much a city, but what kind of thoughts are you putting into creating this type of, you know, situation where you have that collective mindset, or like you said, people competing to who treats you the best, which city you feel the most comfortable in or which uh, community or which tribe or whatever you want to call it, where does your soul feel at ease? And so when we ask ourselves these kind of questions, I think we're opening up, you know, a lot of possibilities in terms of it's really a, how far can your imagination go with the technology that we have now, right? Like we're trying to figure out how can we build communities that can support themselves and not be so reliant on uh, these commercialized uh, corporations and and just what's being thrown at us daily and having that choice so stepping away and taking a look at it from a big perspective like the wide view step out of your body and view from the third person of where do you want to fit in how do you want to live your life that's where we start making the real growth and and the change begins yeah I find myself inclined towards that kind of a system, the individual private um, city that sort of is run as a, as a corporation. I'm actually not, some people uh, talk about corporations in a negative way. And as much as I understand that, because there are a lot of corporations that are not responsible, I find that the, the term corporation actually applies to everything pretty much from your small town to um nonprofits you know the the people like i think even ngos all you know pretty much everything has some form of corporation there's different different kinds of corporations and different scales of corporations and different degrees of responsibility and um but when it comes to the idea of like a private city i think that that's actually pretty cool there's for probably centuries actually there's been these uh, a group of people that were referred to as Neoplatonists, I believe, um, that wanted, uh, although maybe I'm conflating Neoplatonists with these people, but the, the idea of having, going back to the old Greek paradigm of city-states. And I think that this is borrowing from that old idea that comes out of Greece, where there was a whole bunch of different city-states, and then they all were united under Greece, and a lot of the Western civilization has a strong basis, at least ostensibly, in the Greek paradigm uh, in terms of democracy. And we revere the Greco-Roman, um, various Greco-Roman forms of philosophy and architecture and um, politics. Um, and so I think that borrowing from that is a great idea. And um, I think that though we need to try to look at first principles, but rather than um, thinking about them in terms of like uh, 
physics and materials science, those kinds of things that a lot of uh, well-known physicists and, and entrepreneurs of today think, of, think in, they think in first principles thinking. We need to think of it in terms of society and politics and the social dynamic. Years ago, I, I, um, I wrote a paper about how we needed to have, rather than a, a revolution in science that like E equals MC squared have, had, um, or things like quantum mechanics, we need to have a revolution in our society um, that, that allows us to transcend some of the, the historical barriers that we've had in, in being more united and more um, working together as a, at, for the common good of all people. Because I think that the most people think more myopically about the world and that's, that makes sense from an evolutionary point of view, but when we're trying to create a civilization, that is a macro scale phenomenon that requires tens of thousands and millions, billions of people. And so we need to have a much more collectivistic approach when it comes to that. Even though I revere certain aspects of the atomistic or pluralistic worldview, I think that the, um, like I think that you can have a balance between pluralism and collectivism, and I don't think that you need to sacrifice too much of one to have both, and that both together is stronger than one or the other independently. Yeah, absolutely. I actually just read a book by Marcus Aurelius, and uh, those guys really had it figured out. They had that the mindset down, but in terms of, I think how fast they were advancing in their, in their mindsets, it was, it was, they weren't able to control the society that they'd built, uh, which eventually led to their downfall. But, um, talking quantum, uh, mechanics, quantum physics, there's a lot going on with that right now. They're, uh, really shaking the game. Is this something that you're following, Nick? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in it. I worry about the pop interest in it or the pop, <laughs> the pop cultural, uh, how people use quantum mechanical principles to apply that to non-quantum mechanical phenomena, uh, which is, can be troublesome because, you know, then you get people who apply essentially magical reasoning to non-magical realities um and so it's it's uh <laughs> but yes so i do love uh quantum mechanics i think it's amazing that you know particles can exist in two places at the one time or that it can be a wave and a particle at the same time or yeah. you know that there's the the something that can you look at the, it how you talk to it like <laughs> the cause can precede the effect that kind of a, you know it's very strange but the, this is for particles that exist on the subatomic scale and um, often people don't necessarily uh, give proper reverence to that when they talk about it in uh, cultural or individual like there's a lot of ways that quantum mechanics has been used for self-empowerment and uh, as much as I'm in favor of people being self-empowered I also am in favor of not conflating or confusing um, scientific, you know, I, I guess I have this, I have a, a personality that favors accuracy. And so a lot of people, they'll use things inaccurately and I'm just like, oh, God damn it. 
<laughs> but but it, even though I understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, and it's like anyway. So what 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 about quantum mechanics? Were you curious about or uh, interested no, in? Well, no, I was just wanting to chat about it because I mean it's just it's amazing the the technology that we're having to to replicate these results and read them and just so much going on in that side of things i can't imagine that it won't be long before uh, i actually seen i was looking here's a really cool thing if you ever want to find like what's going on you look up the patents because whoever invents something they they want to make money off it and so they almost always patent this and and there's some pretty cool stuff in regards to I can't remember what they call it, but it's essentially uh, like anti-gravity. They call it like a centrifugal matter displacement or something like that. But um, I can't imagine it's going to be too long before we got floating cars and and all all that stuff going on. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to dive into the whole quantum side of things just just reality shifting according to your thoughts and and you know what goes on in your mind affects your reality and and all that fun stuff i think it's a cool thing so i figured if you had some more to stay in it then why not yeah i'm not so much uh sold on the idea that what we think determines reality except for the fact that you know we're here and we can think something and then create something but it's much more of a physical process where we use our hands and we take material and then we produce it. And it's, it's about intention and it's about understanding materials and, and a much more concrete worldview in terms of that process. You don't ever really touch anything, right? Like there's never actually physically touch anything. So you can't really put your hands on anything technically. Well, I mean, whenever you touch something, it's the electrons, that are bouncing off of each other that's causing the forces to interact and so touching something is that it is just our hands are made up of atoms and then the materials that we're touching are made up of atoms and then it's the the electrons repulsive force operating you know trillions of them operating all together is what creates our sense of corporeality uh in what, terms what of would like, you, what would you describe like what and they, you too gary what like what <laughs> this is just a real random question but like how do you describe reality as someone that's just blind or something and they can't see it I mean, how does that even begin <laughs> you want yeah. you want us to give the definition yeah, let's hear just, <laughs> why not gary are you going or am i going with um <laughs> um I'm gonna bring us back to <laughs> to something else, but you can go if you want. Well, I have a very strong definition for reality, and I actually will give you a secondary definition for the contrast between reality and oh, what is it. other than reality. So, um, most of the time, people use the the term "real" to refer to something that isn't necessarily correspond to the physics of the re- of the the world in which we inhabit you know you say what do you really mean or be real man you know we use the term real to evoke the it's it's actually to use a fancy term it's an, the ontological primacy of quote unquote what is real or what is Never objective what is <laughs> what is more meaningful but i think that we need to have 
a definition of what is real as being actually more within the realm of what is subjectivity and that what is real is what is meaningful. And so reality is the realm of subjectivity in which there is meaning. And that includes the meaning that we have about our perception of what is actual. And so there's reality and then there's actuality and actuality is the materials and the particles and the light, you know, I mean, I guess light is particles. So anyway, it's, it's just a, a, the material worldview is what is actuality and actuality is, it is uh, not affected by humans. I know that people want to believe that quantum mechanics says that we influence it, but I'm thinking that that's actually just a, a confusion of the interpretation of like the double, double um, slit experiment and uh, things like that, that, um so anyway i think that oftentimes people will talk about the world and they will use their imagination to um and and there's magical reasoning imagination and wishful thinking all com in combination in various different ways to try to make sense of or find hope and meaning in the world and so but reality is this limited perspective that everybody has. Everybody has their own reality. And one could say that society and or civilization is our collective, the, the way that they overlap or intersect, how they collectivize knowledge and understanding. And, you know, somebody who's crazy is somebody whose reality is not consistent with majority to a significant degree. Um, and that so so actuality is just this the material physical reality that science describes in this objective way and so i have this this priority of trying to separate out the subjective reality versus the objective actuality when it comes to how we define our terms and um, make sense of our reality and ourselves within it <laughs> Any thoughts, questions? <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> Let's get back to the seasteading. Um, okay. <laughs> I know Gary had sent me an article on, I think it was you, Gary, on floating farms. Oh, yeah. Do you guys have a take on this? Um. Yeah, like, I, I sent you that. If, uh, oh. um, but yeah, basically... Um, it seems like it's only effective if it's uh, massive, and it's obviously extremely expensive. So that's that was news to me. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I didn't I didn't dive too into that, but I I would think. That, I mean, there's no shade. It would be great, right? But I guess yeah. So there's there's limits. <laughs> so like. If it's a floating farm, you have to actually build the substrate on which everything is on, right? And and what it's growing within. And so with regular dirt, it's already there and it's pretty much ready to go. You just got to till it up and then plant it. I mean, you have to worry about like chemicals that are present and make sure it's got enough water and, and nutrients and whatever. But when you're doing it on on a constructed platform, the whole thing is, is a human thing. And every bit that we create takes human labor. And so there's a cost associated with it. 
So the costs are going to be higher, but it makes sense if you're going to have, like, if you're, it, it would make sense if you were to do it in like the, the heart of a large city, because then you don't have to transport all of those things into the city from some agricultural region further away. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, even though it might be more costly because you're creating this thing, you're also reducing the amount of CO2 that's generated regularly because you're reducing the amount of transportation costs and transportation costs are not just economic, but they are also in terms of CO2. And so if we're trying to go away from CO2, that would be a good uh, thing to do. Um, I think what's so, like, I'm sorry, what? just one sec quick here. I think yeah. like, knowing that we have this technology and like these ideas but i think like we run into this issue of like so many cities being built already to an older mindset that it's hard to incorporate these new ideas without redoing the whole the whole city and or or you know area yeah well that's what a city is actually so a city is a year by year by year by year for hundreds of years with tens of thousands, millions of people all coming up with new ideas and trying to implement them. And this is one of the reasons why the regulation process is the way it is, is because it has to, it has had to address, you know, every idea that has ever come along and try to make sure that those ideas are good for collective benefit. Like, does it benefit the people more than it hurts them? What does it cost? Uh, how does it help? Is, is it all on the whole a better way of doing going forward? You know, and what's the, what's the cost benefit? You know, the opportunity cost, do we do this or do we do that? You know, and oftentimes people have a more traditional way of thinking where it's like they stick with what is there. It's a, I don't know if the term neophobia is the right word, but it's like that. They're afraid of the new thing. Um, and because it's, and they also don't necessarily see the need for it, you know, until it comes along and it demonstrates that it's viable. People are not going to necessarily be yeah. on board unless it seems like something that's really going to benefit them financially or in terms of their lifestyle. And it's like what what makes the most money, right? Get back gets back to that. Yeah, people are willing to make changes when there's money. Yeah, and there's there's That's also cool. entrenchment. Great. So, like for example, the current transportation network is dominated by the automobile, and that's as far as I'm concerned, that was a bad idea from day one. But, um. You know, it, it emancipated a lot of people and it opened up access to different regions. It expanded the, uh, the the realm sort of of commerce in the sense of making it easier for goods and whatever to be moved to and from all throughout. Prior to that, you had trains and that made it much more limited and you had a decentralized, I mean, you had a centralized um, production network. Uh, where all the resources were brought in from rural areas to the industrial urban centers. And so that's why you have a lot of those 
old industrial facilities in urban environments that are from you know way back in the day um and so yeah it's um now we're we're trying to opt i mean for at all times we're trying to optimize right but there's all these barriers and most of them actually are not government so much or it's mostly the historical precedent so like i came up with various ideas for a transportation network that would be much more efficient in terms of energy and it would be safer and faster and less encroaching on the environment but it would require probably 250 billion dollars or more to build it um, and if you did that it could be so much better you know it would be better than our current automobile based system but what is it going to cost to do it and are people willing to invest in that kind of an unproven system and so even though there's innovation and there's people who are inclined towards innovating you can't it's hard to overcome the hundred years of developing the system that we have now even though it's obvious that our system right now i mean forty thousand people die every year and you know it's just like oh well that's just the cost of doing business that's essentially how we treat it there's hope that with automated vehicles that we're gonna go away from that um you know that we'll if we get to full automation that that forty thousand will drop to maybe four thousand or something like that there'll be like a tenfold drop in I think uh, there's a concern with that though in regards to hacking because i know when jeep first launched their uh your chip car connected to the internet people were hacking into them and <laughs> causing all sorts of accidents yeah the, the easy that? solution like, to that though is to just have it be have the the ai that's controlling the vehicle to be that have that be air gapped from whatever other kind of on on uh on vehicle systems like like internet access should be separate from the ai so that it, even if you could hack the the car from outside that via the internet it would only be able to hack the components that are connected to that air gapping is a is a a known countermeasure to those kinds of systems and i believe that's em employed in places like military facilities nuclear silos like um both in terms of weapons but also in terms of power generation all of those things i think you employ those kinds of principles to maintain the inability for things like China or Russia or whatever to hack the national grid or even just a random hacker who's a 13 year old, you know, from California, whatever, you know, if, if it was that easy, you know, then the solution is that easy as well. You know, it's, so it's, these are things that have been thought of. And I think that, you know, it's something to be concerned about you know, and to be like, make sure that when you buy the car that you know how safe it is so that that kind of thing can happen. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, there's a so lot it's a valid concern. Electric what? car companies popping up right now. So many, so many. I think there's uh, like, they're getting pretty innovative with Tesla's success. There's a lot of companies chasing that. <laughs> yeah, every, right everybody's switching over now, right? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's good. It's good. Yeah, and I actually saw a thing about Tesla maybe getting into insurance. Not fully. I just saw a quick thing really? um, that said something that about like Tesla and good. insurance, but I, I didn't know what I did that see was. also Tesla was looking. I know Elon Musk was speaking about uh, turning your t- uh, Tesla into an Uber when you go to when you go home and yeah. just goes out and works for you and makes you money. <laughs> like, oh, that's all right. Yeah, well, there's actually some. There was some speculation that I saw in an article, uh, maybe a year ago or a year and a half ago, that talked about the possibility of. So you know how like Ford and Toyota and Honda and whatever they all sell us individual cars for our individual ownership but if we transition to this thing where there's all of the cars are self-driving all of those companies might become uh providers of transportation so they would almost be like taxi services um which would be an interesting for sure shift and it would actually allow for it would allow for the the national fleet to be reduced because rather than buying a car and then having the car spend like 80% of its life, just sitting in a, in your garage or in a parked at your work, whatever, you know, it'd actually be able to be out moving somebody else and, and transporting another package or whatever. So it might reduce the overall demand for materials um, in the long run. I think it definitely would because also you would have a lot of people that wouldn't buy cars anymore because if you had that many going, I'm sure it'd be dirt cheap and you would have to, you could probably be picked up anywhere within, you know, two to three minutes. So I think at the long run, it would definitely have a huge impact on the amount of uh, materials and and carbon monoxide being put into the air. Yeah, well, if it's all electric, you won't, you won't have carbon yeah, monoxide. Sorry, the the difficulty there, though, is just getting enough electrical electrical generation yes. that is sustainable. That you know, rather than using what, what do we do coal. About that? What where does that? Where do we begin with that? Where do we like so? Yeah, everything is going electric, and there's look what just happened in Texas. There's huge demand on these power grids, and a lot of them are outdated. What 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 is the next step? Yeah. So what's I mean. Just a think, brief thing on Texas, they are hyper individualistic in terms of their the ideology of the dominant majority within that group. So they run their their state almost like it's their own country. They wanted to make sure that their grid was isolated from the rest of the national grid. In in the U.S., basically, there's the eastern grid and the western grid, and then Texas, and it's just like they didn't want to integrate. And that's one of the reasons why they had an issue that in their infrastructure is really old. And so it's just a failure to plan ahead, which I think um, I'm expressing my political biases here, but I believe that that's a, a conservative tendency is to try to not pay now, even though it might be necessary for to maintain a vital system like an electrical grid. And it's obvious based on how Texas um, worked out that, that lack of planning, that lack of foresight and lack of investment uh, is uh, is problematic. And I think it's sim- something similar could be said about the roads, the transportation network that we have now, like we use oil in order to produce our roads right now. I don't, I don't know if most people really know that, that when, when you refine oil, you essentially boil it down and all the different 
you know, lighter uh, volatile compounds that become like um, jet fuel and car fuel and various different kinds of lubricants and plastics and whatnot. What's left over, um, I think it's called bitumen. Bitumen. That's what. Bit what? Uh, um, bitumen. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's bitumen. Yeah. Yeah, that gets mixed with an aggregate, and that's what asphalt is. And so, if we're trying to go away from being oil dependent and uh, emitting, you know, carbon into the atmosphere with an oil-based economy, we need we need to have roads or have our transportation system not be reliant on that kind of material. And I don't know if that is being resolved. I'm sure that there's various different alternatives that exist, but I don't know about their cost effectiveness. And it makes me think about the, there's this sort of a, an age old uh, argument. Do you build it more expensively where it is a very robust long-lived thing or do you uh build it cheaply where it's going to last for a, a couple years to a de decade and you save a buck in the in the long run or in or in the short term probably is what i mean but we're getting to the point where that kind of a uh, always quality over paradigm quality. of yes it's it's quality versus quantity and also uh quality I guess it's quality versus quantity, but not even quantity in terms of the numbers of things that exist, but it's sort of, it's quantity of time that it will exist for. Hmm. And we're, with the, the growth in population, we're recognizing that there's material scarcity and that's generally, it's a function of population. It's also a function of innovation and technological progress, but it's, um, you know, there's, we talk about having scarcities of X, Y, and Z, but that's because of the amount that we want to consume. And so it's, it's scarce relative to our, to the demand that is, Current. that is put and in some ways that can push innovation, but there's also technological boundaries to innovation. You know, like some people think, Oh, well, the scarcity of gold, once that gets scarce enough, then it will be economically viable to go, send a rocket out into space and harvest an asteroid for various different valuable materials. And they're right in that. Like there's, so there's companies that are interested in, in exploring space and mining um, asteroids. Mining asteroids. Yeah. And I invested um, in a couple. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if it will be in our lifetime that they'll become viable, but it might, it might be near the end of our lives. They might be, might be more of a thing. I feel like um, technology's growing pretty fast. If I think about the last ten years, changed. Yeah. Uh, it's a game changer. I think there's so much going on, and even going back to like you said, the asphalt. That's so old, and, and so many roofs are made of it too. It's very yeah. common in paving and roofing and pretty much anything that they want to be watertight and last over 10 years. And going back to what you said, there's actually this new law I see that they're looking at introducing where you won't be able to manufacture products that are not going to last 10 years. And they want to they want to start implementing. And I'm not saying this. I don't think it was the U.S. It was some country uh, in Europe, I believe. But... Yeah, it sounds like uh, a this European is a kind of thing rather this than is a US kind of thing. mentality that people are adopting, right? And it's it's really good to see 
Um, going back to the the energy though, you were saying you know kind of there was that misconception of you know Texas not putting investing in infrastructure. Do you see that same kind of mentality right now? Because uh, you kind of have everyone you know jumping on the electric train and just manufacturing, manufacturing, trying to be the first one to make a buck. Have they really planned it out well enough? Well, so what they're doing is great in certain ways, right? So they're transitioning away from using hydrocarbons as the primary energy source, at least at the point of, of use, you know, the actual car itself. But, um, and then like Tesla, you know, they are investing in solar panels. Like there's, what is it? Solar, is it solar city or whichever one they own. Um, and, um, but I, so they're existing, they're, they're creating a product that's going to work within the existing environment, right? So it's, it's a, electric cars are great for the existing environment, but the existing environment is already not a good thing in terms of the intensivity of the whole system. We, we uh, have very short term thinking, particularly when it comes to businesses. And so like, for example, where do you think that comes I, from? Sorry, but where do you think that well, like, short term? You think it's a me, me, me mindset, or do you think us as humans, or do you, do you have a theory it, on that? Yeah, it's 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 me, me, me in terms of the people who are running the, the companies and making the policies that will help them in the short term. Uh, but it's also us as a species. Um, we, you know, it actually comes down to that. Uh, reality versus actuality issue so we have a sense of our understanding of what is and oftentimes that's confused i don't know about your um beliefs particularly but i think that most religions actually reflect this issue that there is this imaginatory um dynamic going on where people want to project what they imagine onto what is actual rather than trying to understand what is actual as it exists independently of us. And that's another definition of actuality is that actuality is everything and anything that exists independently of our perception of it. And so I think that people, is that like basically does it bear shit in the woods? It's, it kind of <laughs> relates to that, I suppose, but it's, <laughs> that's more of a semantic definition. Like, the whole tree falling in the woods doesn't make a noise and like noise being the it depends on how you define noise <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. actuality that the worldview of that prioritizes actuality would say if there is a phenom phenomenon that is a tree and it it collapses due to structural you know whatever structural failure it will create a concussive uh influence to the atmosphere when it collides with another object just like any object creates a concussive wave whenever it interacts that's the nature of sound but a noise is is something that we experience uh, of the or as the concussive wave and so um anyway so but the we have we have a tendency to want to be deluded into of the view of things as being better or good than they are sometimes 
you know, because we want to have hope. We want to have, we want to believe in our aspirations, right? It's, it's a reason it's reasonable for people to do this. Um, they want to think that the people that they cared about are alive in some afterlife when there's no reason to believe that. And I think that we, it's, it's like, okay, it's like, I don't want to be mean and say you're totally wrong and and your your grandparents are just dust in the ground now and <laughs> they're only a only a memory but that's that's the, what's actual you know and but people people have this this the tendency to want to believe in a reality that is more favorable to something that comforts them and that's totally understandable and it you know it's but the um i think a lot of it's how you grow up too oh totally yeah. Yeah. Nick, I'm just curious, uh, what are your thoughts on solipsism? What is that? Solipsism is the belief that only you exist in the universe. Yeah, it's like you can only be sure about your own consciousness. That's the only thing yeah. you can be sure of. I mean, I think solipsism is is a confused uh perception of existence. I mean, but that that's essentially is what our realities are. It's you can't have definitive knowledge about the existence of anything outside of yourself. That's essentially what Descartes was talking about. You know, it's what do you have certainty of? You know, I, I think therefore I am, that is one truth that we know, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a world outside of ourselves that because we don't, we can't prove <laughs> those kinds of, of things doesn't mean that we should live our lives or organize our world according to that, um, that lack of proof but that's that's because we are subjective beings like and so the inherent nature of being subjective is it's a you can't prove the non-existence of something and if you reduce everything to well maybe i'm only perceiving that because some demon is is confusing me or or deluding me into believing it so you completely bracket off everything then, but that that's, that's a philosophical exercise that doesn't really have too much to say about the world as it exists independently of us. Right. It's, and I think a lot of people, they, they read or learn about Descartes and they take that idea and then they run with it. And it's similar with, and, and they do it in an, in a way that I think is in, in error. And it's similar to the, taking the ideas of quantum mechanics and running with it and doing so in error with respect to what makes sense to say about the phenomena in question. So like, um, you know, this is where I think we need to make sure that we have a, a definition of subjective reality versus objective actuality and not to be confused. You know, I, I think that the cogito ergo sum should be sum ergo cogito so like rather than i think therefore i am it's more i am therefore i think we need right. to understand that even though um we shouldn't be reductive in our understanding of our subjective sense of meaning we do need to understand that what is actual is necessarily precedent to the subjective and we know that to be true based on the the pattern that we see in science you know it's like there is this material emergence of the universe it evolved it evolved it evolved in these different phases of evolution and then 
it became life and us. And so, and we think we are able to think and perceive, and this is, uh, we shouldn't be consumed or confused by our own subjective perception. We need to make sure that we are not confused by that. And that's essentially the project of science is to try to understand how we are able to be consumed by or confused by our own subjectivity in the endeavor of trying to understand what is actual. And so I think that when it comes to things like quantum mechanics and religion, we need to make sure that those which, um, and I'm talking about religion specifically, that it's, that is entirely within subjectivity. It, it doesn't really correspond to what is actual. It's more of a, a I don't know, it's confused. It's, Religion it's like is super dream. confused. Every person has a different dream, right? A different reality. I think in terms of like what you guys were saying, I, I personally, in my mind, don't feel like I vibe with that. What is it called again? Which? Solipsism? Solipsism. Because I feel like yeah. you can feel people. I feel like you can feel their energy and before you talk to them. And in my mind, that would just kind of contradicts that being alone. Cause you just, there's times where you just feel, you just know you're not. Yeah. I'll just, I just put like, if, if you're having a dream, right. And you meet somebody and you, you're going to feel these people just the same as when you're awake. Right. So yeah. that's, that's what it's still I you feel. though. It's like, I don't think so though. I mean, if if you've ever had a dream that's vivid and and it's more like a memory, it's not it's not like a present feeling. Uh, like, I've had very vivid, very realistic dreams, so I can't tell the difference yeah. between reality and and yeah, my dreams are all very vivid too. But I'm flying, so I know it's a dream. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm yeah, really... well, I think that the the nature of solipsism relates to that whole Cartesian thing, but it's, but it's, it is a delusion. It's the, the Descartes wasn't trying to pursue um, an ontological truth in the sense of like, what is true about existence. It was more of a, what is true about subjectivity. And, and so when you bracket off all of the rest of existence, solipsism makes sense but when you in include all the rest of existence solipsism makes zero sense even yeah. though it it does make sense to our own individual sense of self and and being confused but it's that's mm -hmm. typically typically children and teenagers go through a phase of solipsistic uh delu and i consider it a delusion yeah because it's it doesn't correspond with actuality sufficiently it's or yeah, it's or Something it to ponder, but it's pretty unproductive. What? I said it's something to ponder, but it's pretty unproductive. Yeah, very yeah. limited utility, or if not, if any. Yes. I mean, it's, <laughs> so let's move on. <laughs> so Nick, if you know you want to make a sustainable new private city, where do we start? Uh, that's super. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the the question Boom. of the age, right? But, um, I think, I don't know, you could start in the ocean, you could start in some sort of greenfield development, you could even start in an existing city. I think you need to, what you need is to have a system of identifying things that you want to have, or what it what makes sense, given our understanding of climate change, and various things like that, and to try to um, transition the bad to good. 
and uh, you know, it's there's a lot of compromise that is going on in the world, and sometimes compromise is great. Sometimes it's it's uh, it's like eh, and then sometimes it's bad. Like yeah, uh, and I think some of the compromise that, that's happening is bad because it's it's uh, too many people are inclined towards maintaining the status quo. And we yeah. recognize, at least the people who are aware of what is actually happening, we recognize that we need to do something very radical with respect to the systems of uh, energy production and transportation. And, you know, it's, our whole system needs a real retooling and uh, transition. And mm -hmm. uh, just so anyway, the I, old one and just start fucking from the beginning, just burn all the laws get rid of it and we'll start figuring <laughs> out all, all fresh <laughs> well yes yeah, so there's different thoughts about how to achieve that and whether or not we will even be able to achieve them so like a lot of times people think that uh they're you know the, the idea of gradualism so some people think that if you just wait that innovation and whatever will come along and you'll figure out the problem and things will get better and things will always get better. That's essentially the, the promise uh, of gradualism. Sounds like a procrastinator just came up with that. Not in China. What? <laughs> Sounds like a procrastinator came up with that. Oh, let's just give it a fancy name and then I can do this the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people subscribe to that. The idea that if you just give it time, things will get better. And, and in some ways it's true. Like, you know, but, uh, our sorry, lives to today are so much better than they were. A difference there what? because not everyone subscribes to it. I think people believe that certain, the powers that be have their best interests at heart. And so I, th I just, I think that was worth noting that, you know, there's not a lot of people that even know they're subscribed to this channel and they're, yeah. they're just going through life and going through the motions and they never see above it all yeah most people just yeah. kind of view the government as like big daddy and they just do whatever they're supposed to do and they don't really think about it too much but yeah. at the end of the day they're supposed to provide us a service right yep and but the problem is is that they can't force i mean they could but they generally don't want to force things onto people and a lot of people would perceive this to be a forcing of an unnecessary thing and they would perceive it as being a threat to their way of life and um you know so and then like you you see in the united states that there's i mean a lot of people have said this and i am inclined to agree that we're we're kind of going through this cold civil war and the civil war is essentially between two ideological factions. One is more pro-government, pro-collectivism, pro, pro uh, what is the actual understanding of things like climate change and trying to be more progressive on things like poverty and crime and all, you know, there's a whole, you know, it's, it runs the gamut. And there's, there's actually, it's two sort of large factions, but they're actually composed of, probably thousands of small little micro f f factions that are themselves spread out across the whole country in, you know, across what, 320 million or 330 million people. And so 
the one of the issues is that there's so many people with so many different ideas about how to optimize and how to solve all these problems and a lot of people don't actually know what they're talking about because they haven't <laughs> taken the time to understand the actual science to understand the the complexity of the issues and this is you know you can you can see this as being evident by all the people who are one one issue voters single issue voters they they don't care to learn about the complexity of of the whole dynamic and complexity is the thing that i think a lot of people are averse to um i was raised to embrace it because i found beauty in complexity and wasn't afraid of it uh but i have a unique uh educational and familial background so that it it these kinds of things were uh encouraged to embrace complexity and learn about it and the intricacies of all these things and so but in that though there there's the issue of people who don't understand complexity and then they want to solve complexity with a simple problem or with a with a simple answer that is an answer that is very not conducive to a lot of um a lot of people and a lot of good ideas i mean there's um some people they they want to throw away the bill of rights (laughs) in the united states and well um, can i just can i just hop in here um yeah. When I think of the government, I think like the system, how it supports now, and it's it's so outdated and it's so you know materialistic and based on perception and looks, and, and it's basically like the popularity contest because you see so much people with good intent get into politics and they come out after two years and they're just broken and it and it turns out that you don't. You don't change things by having good ideas. You have you change things by making friends, and mm-hmm. that whole system it, it's it's just a joke. Like let leaders lead. People are being great leaders, and they're getting dispelled because they had an affair or, or smoked a joint or just some stupid reason. And then you get these dirty little little bottom feeders that are just great at manipulating and, and just backstabbing and, and, and yet they're the ones making the laws and buddy that you know is a born leader and a selfless person that really wants to help change the world, he comes home crying at the end of the night because he can't make a difference and, and he's spent his whole life to get in there. And I think that's like as a system, it's a serious problem where you can't just uh, be a leader, have good values and and strengths to give and share with your country or your community, without having to jump through hoops and and being shut down constantly by, uh, like you said, micro factions and 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 all these little cliques that go on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the dominant um, in terms of like actionable ideology in the united states when it comes to conservative conservatism is actually a very small subset of all the people who identify as conservatives but because it's the loudest and it has uh, paired itself with a bunch of billionaires because it serves their economic interest it becomes the dominant position of the whole party when it's actually an aberration to the general will of, of even the conservative populace and so it's, I agree. I mean, it's, we, the, the difficulty is vast. <laughs> yeah. The, I think that 
the best thing that we can do is to try to create our own system, operate within the bad one, and try to create people that will then create the next system and to not only just do that by trying to engender this better way of viewing the world, but to try to give them the means to actually do through, do so through a more of a systematic approach that, but it, but in a way that it's, it is generating productivity and prosperity. We need to try to promote prosperity broadly and I think that How if we, we can do that, that on a micro scale, then we can try to expand that and do that on like a, a town level and then try to expand that to a regional one and then try to pr proliferate from there and to try to make a better world through activities rather than just through sharing of, of ideas. What? What's your definition of prosperity? Well, prosperity would be to have the means to subsist and persist in a reasonable level of comfort. Um, and I don't think it, you know, I, some people think of prosperity as just making a whole bunch of money. And I think that, you know, there is a financial component, but it's, I mean, I think that I, I'm a fan of capitalism. I'm also a fan of socialism. There were some aspects of communism that were like, Hey, that's kind of cool, but I don't, I don't know. I like, I read Marx. I read um, a bunch of different philosophers about that, a bunch of different non-communistic socialistic paradigms that were, you know, like solipsism, not solipsism, but uh, um, syndicalism you're in, you're in is an alternative head, to <laughs> communism. You're in your own head. Sorry, what? <laughs> um, nothing. I just wanted to, yeah, just share this uh Titus Gable's idea of how to actually do that, like uh, create a new governmental system, right? Because I think it's it's pretty uh, interesting. So basically, there would be a, a government service provider, um, which would be like a legal entity, um, and they would basically you'd have a citizen's contract. So basically, all the terms are laid out for, before you, and you agree to these terms, and um, and the, the government would provide the service for you. You pay a fixed fee per, per year. And, you know, if they don't live up to that fee, then you could either leave or, you know, take them to court and it would be settled in, in that way as usual. So I think this is, it makes a lot of sense. Um, how do you guys feel about this? Without knowing much about it, I like it. I mean, I, it sounds similar to an idea that I came up with, which is, I mean, it's very similar. I was thinking much more particular rather than just a, a paradigm. I was thinking about like, okay, so what would it be called? Where would it be located? Like um, what systems would it try to incorporate within itself? And I guess I, I wonder about like legally establishing, you know, cause you're creating this thing and it's not its own country, right? It's a city. And so it has to exist within the legal paradigm, legal framework. And, you know, so who, if this, the government provider or service provider or whatever, if somebody takes them to court, then everybody that's within that city is essentially paying the legal fee for, and so then that makes it less economically viable for everybody 
if there is, I mean, and, you know, I understand that there needs to be a legal system, but I just wonder about the efficiency of such a thing. And hmm. um, in, in general, I agree with the idea. I mean, I, I think that the idea of having a, I, I, I thought about a private municipality and uh, that it was, would essentially use something like the Cleveland model or a model similar to, I, I think they may have actually employed it in um, England. It was, it's a system that's, there's a group called the Democracy Co Co Collective or uh, anyway, uh, that they put this, some of these ideas out there trying to create community wealth building uh, networks. Yeah. I and think I think they were, they were thinking more of a, on a business level, you know, that you would have like this benefit corporation that would be trying to seed various different corporations within this community. And they would provide various different services to that community and use anchor institutions as a, you know, a partnership with, with the anchor institutions partnership with the local government. But I think if you have, if you are the local government and you are the, the benefit corporation, then it's even better because it's a, a public private relationship. If that's even what it is, I don't even know if it I is that at the point. What we were doing. I mean... Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's what I was trying to push. Uh, I was trying to, you know, uh -huh. give these ideas to the group and, and, See, see what everybody yeah, thought about. Yeah, I mean, my, we might as well have a little bit of a discussion about that. It's like nothing to hide. Um, yeah, you mean with our, our thing, what we're thinking uh, about doing? Yeah, I mean, we're going to dive into a little something and see what we come up with here. So when yeah. I think of, uh, I know our system, we kind of figure, obviously, we need a closed system. Like, we need to be able to... I mean, it's not saying close, like, unopened to resources or, or that, but I would think that we want to contain our communities, thus easier to implement systems and, and support. Oh, yeah. Like uh, yeah. Nick said last time, um, there's going to be, like, a lot of regulations between the building and energy, um, waterways, stuff like that, right? So that would be the only issue that I would see. Yeah, yeah I, and there's possibility of contaminants too. Like, and and if there's contaminants, that can create issues for, you know, like, it, you know, if somebody flushes plastic down the toilet and then that goes into the composting, we can't eat plastic, right? And I don't know how you filter that out. I mean, I'm, maybe you know that, Garrett. Um, but you know, there's certain certain things that I don't have technical knowledge about with respect to how to create a closed system and. Uh, or as closed as possible. It's, you know, the idea of creating a circular economy or <clears throat> I really like that article that you sent Gary about the, what was it called? Microgridding, I think. Um, yeah, that was, yeah. That was perfect. That seemed great. That was perfect. Yeah, it's brilliant. That's like exactly yeah. what it, just the way it laid out looked. Uh, it's a, I mean, the housing looked a little different than I had it envisioned. But essentially, I yeah. think like you'd, you'd want to have that community aspect because when you build the relationships with people they want to help more they want to help each other they want to help the cause they want to it's it's not just about hey here's a city or here's a community that we've built that's completely circular blah 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 it's hey here's a new way of life hey here's your ticket out of this shithole that you hate so much <laughs> the, one, the one you complain about every day 
every day you complain about the traffic and the weather and this this is your ticket out and how to get it set up there's i mean i know you brought up regulations but it's not as strict as 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 it just sounded there when you said it yeah um there's definitely like hoops that have to be jumped through you're gonna have to get certain uh permits and and that kind of stuff but once it's done it's done yeah. Terms of being a completely yeah. closed system, right? There's different technologies, and like what you said, Nick, there's a lot of technical details that really need to be dived into. But the whole aspect, the general idea, it's beautiful. Yeah, and, and <laughs> as far as like sovereignty, um, you know, if we do it on native land, you have the sovereignty there, right? Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah, definitely. So and, the- so I don't know anything really about native sovereignty, especially in Canada, because it's uh, I, I know a, a, a tiny fraction about American native sovereignty, mostly just because I knew some some people that worked with and or were part of tribes out west. But and I actually did uh, some security work when, uh, on the Blackfoot Reservation, which is actually just outside um <laughs> Glacier. I don't know if you guys know about the Blackfeet. Are, are they? Do they have a presence in Canada? I'm no, not I sure, just had a little but... laughter because I was picturing you busting some heads open or something. Big black <laughs> no, it was me. <laughs> I was just pretty much sitting there in. monitoring a, a train track. That was that was about it. Yeah, I'm just sitting around. Um, but yeah, so the once yeah once you can get the the system set up, the one of the issues that I think we need to address in the initial. Uh, framing or development of this is the logistical realities of people and you know so amenities is one of the biggest attractors of any group of people to any location within the within any urban environment and so um, the the location needs to provide a sufficient variety of amenities and some of those we can't provide right there you know it's well, I don't We're know. Not I think big there's in- a lot. I really think there's a lot we can repi- uh, provide, my bad. Because here's what we have to understand. What we build, when you build, people follow. And, and so when you're building for a cause with purpose, you might not attract everyone with that first project, but you're going to attract the people that you want to attract. And if you go back to a more basic side of things like obviously you can have your wi-fi and electricity but get the get off your phone and the and the tv and find ways to do things outside there's so many activities and and uh amenities that could be implemented in small areas of space that could provide uh you know lots of positive experience for whoever was there uh, i think that you know like just even gardening and and you know meditation like you said innovation centers where you can meet you can link your chat healing centers to discuss problems and resolutions stuff going on in your life you got kid centers there's there's all this place that you build for a community to meet and grow and then you can have like like i said before not so much a barter system implemented but you can through education uh try to nudge people to share with each other and help each other out so they get to know each other and it's and from that system you'll find the people that want to stay and and that's where you'll find that that flourishing right 
Yeah, what what type of amenities uh, do you think that we wouldn't be able to uh, have there, Nick? Well, I guess I was thinking like, depending on the size of this, you know, you I think we were talking about like ten to twenty units, right? That was yeah. sort of the range, 40, and so that acres, that might that might be about uh, thirty to forty people, give or take. And the issue there is size of that market. And depending on how isolated it is, we wouldn't be able to provide them with a variety of different restaurants. We wouldn't be able to provide them with multiple options when it came to like, I don't know, like a gym or I don't know, whatever the the reason why people move to cities is because there's all of those things, you know, there's like a, a hundred of each. And that's something that people like to have options and diversity and, um, you know, depending on their own particular individual needs. And so if you're trying to create something that is scalable, I mean, that, you know, because we're we're trying to create something great. Right. But we're also trying to create something that can then become there can be a secondary or it can grow, like make it another 10 units and another 10 units or whatever. I'm not exact. We haven't really figured out these things exactly yeah, yet. Yeah. But... <laughs> no, definitely just throwing ideas around. Yeah. But like, um, I think that's where, you know, commercial, the commercial side comes in because I'm sure there's a lot of businesses that would be interested. Right. At a certain scale, I think a lot, a lot of businesses would come into it. Like, And I think, I think the 50 people is a little, little low because I mean, if you're thinking sustainable, you're having just a small, tiny home. You're trying to encourage people to be out in the community, not not sitting inside all day. And that's hopefully the kind of people you attract to this uh, kind of project, right? Well, let, let's keep yeah. in mind, like, a Native Reserve. Like, how many people are generally on the Native Reserve, Garrett? Well, I come from a really small reserve, the Semiamu First Nation in White Rock, and we have about a hundred people. Okay. And uh, it's very small. Yeah. Very small. Our people actually sort of came to uh, smallpox back in the day. Lost a lot of people. But uh, yeah, I think we're at a hundred now. Um, that's a whole different thing to get into because you know have the support systems implemented right now to. To kind of have a comparison, you know, um, but there are other bands like in Squamish and Vancouver, and they're large, like two thousand, three thousand oh, people, yeah. and they're there and they're go. doing really well. They got schools and and housing and and centers, and um, I think there's the North Vancouver uh, people as well who just are invoking right now actually a regenerative sustainable project where it's all going to be vertical plantation and greenery and and really it's not so much a circular but definitely thought out to be uh sustainable the solar power and and all that fun stuff yeah so so if depending on where it's located and the people who are there and their interest this is the there's you could even think of it in terms of probabilities like depending on adjacencies to things given the number of population and various things like culture and and affluence and intellect and whatever like 
you're going to get a certain number per per hundred thousand or whatever that are might be interested in actually um, doing this. And so if you have a large population that's adjacent, then that's a good thing. But if you're, I don't know where things are in terms of distance to Vancouver and uh, population density and things like that. But yeah, you know, if I we mean, could find I, I was thinking land like for something like this, you'd probably want to start somewhere like California or down where it doesn't rain. <laughs> just because yeah, that's maybe. one more issue to worry about when if you're starting like a project that's so edgy that there's nothing really to fall back on it's kind of first uh among the first for that kind of type of innovation for development that you'd want to limit all uh variables right you try to keep that a scenario as steady as possible so it depends what you want to do with the rainwater <laughs> yeah you, right true rainwater can be a valuable resource as well that's that's definitely true and that's so, so there's yeah. so much to discuss there's so many moving parts in any kind of system like I that think, right i think in terms of like i i don't i'm not inclined necessarily well i'm not against going to california but like i'm i'm not so one of the one of the futurist uh, predictions is that water scarcity is going to be a huge thing um, in the coming century. I, I don't I don't agree with that. Yeah, you don't agree with that. I don't because here's I like for for a guy that comes from a background in water, they say that there's not a lot of water but when you look at these masses of it's just stupid amounts of water i mean up here in canada it, it, there's no yeah, way we're ever running out of water the thing is we yeah. give a lot of our water or sell it for nothing to the states and the states is yeah it's scarcity because you guys built your main core in a desert and you water and it's whole lush greenery and you've literally been running water for the past hundred years as stupid amounts of water. Yeah. You're going to run out, but the world yeah, so that's, is far but from that's running what I'm talking over. About, is the that, world is far so, from running over. So the reality globally is that a lot of places are tapping a lot of their water reserves. And so, and the United States is an example. Um, Mexico is an example, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I don't know about all of them, there's actually a satellite that's in orbit around the planet that monitors this, where they monitor uh, actual, it's it's actually, I think it's mass changes. So it's like a gravity-based thing. And they can see over time how the gravity of an area has declined because of the water extraction. And so we, we've been doing that in the United States, particularly in what's called the Ogallala Aquifer, which is basically right in the middle of the United States. Um, it runs north to south. It's like, it might even be the biggest aquifer in the world, but it's, it's supposed to run out of water by the middle of this century. So 2050, uh, roughly, um, supposed to dry up. And that is one of the sources, the main sources for all of the water that's used in the American agricultural production system in that whole region. And so, and, Com comparing that to other countries like Saudi Arabia, um, I think it was Saudi Arabia, it was either that or Kuwait, they built um, circular irrigation for their own agriculture out in the middle of a desert and they pumped water from the, the their aquifer system 
and it dried out within i, I want to say maybe a decade 15 years or less i'm not sure about this the specifics of that um i watched a documentary on this but the it's happening in most places uh throughout the world they're they're not sustainable in their consumption of these things in the same way that we're not sustainable when it comes to like oil you know it's we don't have this long-term mindset and so when i'm saying let's not go to california is because that's a dry place that's becoming more dry because of global warming and you know that's part of the reason why there's so many fires that are happening there and you don't have the sense of scarcity because you come from a water rich area, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's Lucky like, up here. you know, the, an Eskimo might be like, Hey, uh, it, there's plenty of ice in the world. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just <laughs> you know. talking in terms of, you got basically all of the North is ice. It's all melting constantly. There's massive flows of water just because it hasn't ended up down there. And that well's drained, it could easily be moved around. Yeah, but a lot of it's going into the oceans. That's the issue. And we've already tapped most of the fresh water sources on the planet. We could be more efficient, definitely, right? Oh, we yeah. could make it so that our, our water systems are less leaky and we could regulate so that the water is not being used in more in the frivolous ways. A lot of these pipes and, in the water systems, there are hundreds of like there's we're and this is a popular city here when i was working with the city for the like we're doing road uh, road piping there's still clay pipes down there like they're still using clay pipes in some parts of the city like 140 yeah. years old pipe like literally since they invented it yeah, but how it's leaky never, are they? Oh, extremely and it's a huge issue, a very huge issue, a very real issue. Uh, but it all yeah. goes back to money, and they don't want to pay to dig it up and fix it until it breaks something or breaks somebody's house. And it's the same, like you say, being efficient with water. Why run yeah. two pipes when you can run one? Why yeah. build a whole different system when you don't have to? You just pipe it into the old system. It's a, it's a mindset that we're trying to elevate and shift because we're we're losing that battle for sure as a whole. Yeah. So like I think in places where there's where it's relatively water rich, the the worrying about the scarcity of that thing is is not an issue. And this is this is part of the problem is, is that if you're in an area where you're wealthy, then you don't worry about poverty. Or if you're worried if you if you're in an area where you have a lot of food, you don't worry about starvation. You know, it, we need to be aware of this on a global level and then also make sure that when we think about a system that we're trying to implement that we not go to a place that we don't understand and use our, our way of understanding and apply it to that area. You know, just like we wouldn't have a, a network of fountains out in the middle of a desert, although they do that, which is ridiculous. I don't understand why they do that, but <laughs> yeah. And that goes um, back to the scarcity thing. Like I know there's a lot of, you're saying, Oh, well, it's water rich up here, but it's what we, we sit here and we point fingers at each other when it's the same companies pumping all this water up and taking it and and, and doing whatever they will. Like there's there's a massive issue with waste and industrial usage and, and just astronomical numbers that are not being drank. It's like it's like they tell you that your car is the issue, but it's, you know, 
uh, 3% of the corporations contribute to, to 99% or whatever it is, 95% of the pollution. And they yep. sit here and point fingers at you and make you fight each other. And this is what I'm always trying to get at. There's a system that is flawed and, and they sit here and they go, oh, well, you're from Water Rich and you're not. Well, no, it's just we never had a corporation. I mean, yes, in Canada, we are very water rich. But, you know, in certain areas, there's these even look at Africa is a, a, a great example of this. They are so rich in resources and, and, and yet... They have no control over their own country. There's just all these billion-dollar corporations in there sucking them for every resource they have, and they, they leave when they're done, and they like use it. And it's the same down in the States. People want to build their visions. They don't give a shit about anything they hurt or cause in the process. And then they look back, and they go, oh, fuck, we got no water. Then we got to blame somebody. Well, let's make them fight each other and we'll point fingers and say that, uh, you know, it's, it's this or that. But at the end of the day, who sucked uh, one billion megaliters of water from the earth, right? And that just yeah. even gets back to, like, the poisoning, industrial poisoning of the water as well. Like, that's uh, another huge issue. Yeah, well, like, fracking, you know about that? Like, Yeah, yeah, fracking, and that's bad up here in Canada. All yeah. Because they're doing a lot of... Uh, Tar you guys have the tar stamps. stuff like that, and it's, and people are lighting there. I actually did one of my, uh, I think it was my midterm project on fracking, and it was insane. Like you got near all the gas towns where where there's just so many drills going on that you got people turning on their taps and f gas coming out, being able to light it on fire. <laughs> it's just like holy crap. And I think you sent me an article, Gary, where the ground up is. Uh, the glycophosphate or glyphosate. Glyphosate. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, Round up. It's an extremely horrible chemical for us, for the environment, but it's actually got to the point now where their farmers are using it so much in the agricultural system that it's actually penetrated the aquifers and is now in our drinking water on top of everything else. I mean, they found it in your cereal, your beer, your anything that has wheat, basically is is now just coated with this stuff but now on top of that we get to enjoy it in our water too yeah and that's cancer causing many different types of cancer right that's not but good. yeah nick back to <laughs> I what you were saying I, I do like what you were getting at that you know what you are right should stick to what we know and where we know that way we can anticipate uh outcomes better it's always better to I mean, instead of trying, see, see what I did there with my mindset. I tried to optimize for our situation instead of making the situation optimized to us. And so, there's always little lessons to be catching yourself on. <laughs> yeah, well, so like, I'm totally fine with like trying to proliferate, um, but I think that when we implement the system, it needs to be location specific and respect the conditions of the of the local culture but also the local mo mostly it's about about the local ecology is what i'm i care about because what i care about is the complexity of the system as the, the macro system like i care about you know human prosperity and i think that that's necessary in order for people to take on the responsibility of protecting complexity but at the end of the day i'm i guess i'm worried mostly about complexity be in part because that is what we are reliant on, but also because I just revere complexity in the universe because 
because that's what we are and that's what the universe has done. And, you know, it's, if you, if you wipe it out, you're wiping out billions of years of evolution. Well, I guess it's more like tens of, or hundreds of millions of years, but since or complex life has really it. only been around for about 500 uh, million. <laughs> what? Oh, it's nothing. Just rambling. Yeah, we definitely yeah, so need I, to uh, be I think smarter about we need to create. We need to create essentially a, a corporation that has this, the desire to expand, but the desire to expand in a way that is almost like planting seeds so that in a, in a desert where it's it, 100% it, it goes from being, going goes from being these terrible conditions where people are being exploited and whatnot to being much better conditions where everybody is has a greater degree of prosperity and but that the system is not extractive or exploitative to any unreasonable degree and you know because I think that if I I imagine that we could have a world where corporations like that or whatever or we maybe even one large corporation is essentially running it all but doing it in this way that it's like it's like people look at it and they they think corporation as a good word you know it's like imagine that corporation as a good word <laughs> the thing about corporations is when you get large you lose control and if you think of a corporation a corporation is a system that requires certain tasks and points be met at dates and you're essentially just throwing people back in a new version of the old system if you look at it at a corporation standpoint because when i think corporation i think uh here's our goal here's how we achieve it this is the way we do it and and if you follow those steps or or help us in one of these parts then you can be a part of it but that to me is you're going to get people caught in the same mundane tasks just trying to fit in whereas you're not allowing that expression of that individuality and and creativity come out which we're trying to in my mind establish a stronger connection with the, the earth and spirit and self and giving people that room to play more uh, in their own mind and soul instead of going into a new system with a different name yeah so i don't think that corporations as a broad term is uh mutually exclusive with that possibility i think that corporations as they exist uh the traditional corporations of today and by that i mean mostly the for-profit um the main type of corporation but like i was saying earlier there's like a whole variety of different kinds of corporations and different ways of having the relationships occur. So I guess I don't mean corporation in that reductive sense. I mean it in, in the broader sense and that <clears throat> I imagine a day where we could have one or more corporations that are actually perceived and, and are encouraging of what you're talking about, where it's like you can, there's more opportunity, there's more, um, and even if that means subsidization and that cuts into um, profitability, you know, it's like, I think that profitability, it makes sense, but I don't think that it should be at the, the cost of any group Definitely. or Definitely. ecology. And you're thinking like, 
Okay, profit. Everyone wants to make profit. But if you're trying to live that life, then there's no read for that gap to get as big as it is now. I mean, obviously, it's it's okay to want to be doing well for yourself. But at what point are you not contributing to the wellness of everyone anymore, right? And that's like, so yeah, you want to be profitable. But subsidize is is a good goal too because that brings out a lot of support and allows people freedom to uh, catch themselves and or maybe just pursue something they might not have so i think it's a there's a fine line but uh, the 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 kind of profit that um you know is associated with having a, a corporation or a public you know company that money 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 that's the mentality we gotta we gotta beat and it's like you said planting seeds because that's all this is all these conversations and these ideas are just trying to plant seeds and hopefully one just hits the right person one day and they go shit this is possible just like the three of us having this conversation and that's when the world starts to change is when people believe in themselves and they believe in these possibilities of these ideas and and better ways coming to fruition because everybody always has the best idea in their own head and what their best is and where can we meet in the middle where everyone's kind of like yeah that's good yeah and i think what you what you were saying garrett about like people not being able to express themselves to the fullest um i think especially after covid that this is becoming like people are understanding this a lot more and things might change in the workforce like you know a lot of people are staying home to to work and i think that's maybe the the work week will be changed in the future for sure right so that will you know allow more time for people to express themselves take care of themselves care of their family and and be more in tune with with uh, the earth and each other yeah yeah Yeah, if you can partner a for-profit corporation, one that's fully responsible, with a private municipality that also works...